Hello, welcome to Akbar's Chamber. I'm your host, Niall Green. And in this episode, we're going to be talking about the Muslims of Russia. While discussions of Islam and the West, Islam and Europe are invariably framed in terms of Western Europe, Russia, in fact, is proportionally home to a far larger Muslim population, is a proportion of the population, than Western Europe. And what's more, Muslims have lived within the Russian state for the best part of 500 years. Over the next hour, we'll be looking at not only the political history of these Muslims, as they came under first the rule of the Grand Duchy of Muscovy, and then the Russian Empire, and ultimately the Soviet Union, and now the Federation of Russian republics. We'll also be looking at the rich intellectual and spiritual legacy of these various Muslim peoples. After all, over the period of Russia's history, and particularly the Russian Empire as it expanded from the 16th through to the early 20th century, the variety of Muslims under Russian rule ranged from Volga Tatars, Siberian Tatars, Bukharian Tatars, to Uzbeks, Turkmen's, and Tajiks, Kazakhs, Bashkirs and Georgian-speaking Ajarians, not to mention Chechens, Avars, Azeris and the various other peoples of the Caucasus Mountains. These varied Muslim communities first began to fall under Russian rule during the rule of Ivan Grozny, Ivan the Terrible or the Fearsome as his name is variously translated, in the 1550s. And for the best part of two centuries, Russia enforced policies of Christianization and Russification. But then, in the age of what used to be called the enlightened despots of the 18th century, Catherine the Great issued her Edict of Religious Tolerance. And from that point on, a whole range of religious and educational institutions flourished across the expanding Russian Empire among groups of Muslims of many different kinds, each with their own languages and learned traditions. Helping me understand this rich and varied picture of a Muslim mosaic across Imperial Russia and then the Soviet Union and up until the present day is Dr. Alfred Bustanov. He's speaking to us from Kazan, the capital of the Russian Federal Republic of Tatarstan, a city that, as we'll hear, was one of the great Muslim intellectual centres in Imperial Russia as it remains to this day. In his working life, though, Dr. Bustanov is an assistant professor of Eastern European Studies at the University of Amsterdam, as well as a principal investigator of a European Research Council project on the Muslim individual in Imperial and Soviet Russia. He's the author of several books in Russian as well as English, including Soviet Orientalism and the Creation of Central Asian Nations. He'll be telling us about the wider history of the Russian Muslims, as well as talking to us about some of the fruits of his own investigations, his own research journeys in search of lost manuscripts in various different languages in Dagestan, as well as among the Muslim communities of Siberia. Hello, 
Alfred. Welcome to Akbar's Chamber. Hey, hello. Well, today we're going to be talking about the, the Muslims of the Russian Federation, or more simply, Russia. And what's so interesting and enlightening about the study of the, the Muslims of Russia is that this is, in fact, Europe's oldest continuous Muslim population. And although discussions of Islam in Europe, Islam in the West, are uh, invariably framed in, with reference to either Western Europe or, or sometimes the United States, the Muslim population of Russia and therefore the, the Muslim relationship with Russia and Russian Europe is far older and proportionally far larger. This is a relationship uh, that goes back at least 500 years. Muslims being part of the, the, the state of, of Muscovy and then of, of, of Russia proper for the best part of five centuries. And also proportionally, the Muslim population of, of Russia is around twice the size of that of Western Europe. The Muslim population of Western Europe varies from country to country, but it's around five to 6%. Whereas in Russia, we're talking around somewhere between 10 and 14% of the overall population and a number of around 15 to 20 million sort of altogether. And of course, this is an extremely diverse and extremely geographically uh, widespread population as well. So perhaps as we start this great exploration across the huge territory, the many time zones, the many linguistic zones of the Russian Federation of of what's now Russia today. Perhaps you can start us off, Alfred, by telling us who are the Muslims of Russia today? Yes, thank you, Niall. Well, indeed, it is fascinating to think of Russia as a Muslim country. A country that uh, is home for so many nationalities and traditions of Islam that were historically and geographically indeed. So you have um, uh, the, a huge variety of uh, uh, Muslim nations and populations in the North Caucasus historically belonged to uh, the uh, Russian Empire and later to the Soviet Union. So in Dagestan and Chechnya, you have um, Muslim na nations uh, that, that uh, for, for um, centuries identified themselves with the Islamic culture. Uh, further uh, northwards, um, we have um, the central, the inner parts of Russia, that is the Russian Federation, uh, the regions of the Volga Urals and Siberia that are traditionally uh, perceived as the uh, cradle of uh, uh, Islamic cultures in, in this country. Uh, and also, uh, historically, we can uh, think of uh, Turkestan or Central Asia as a huge uh, region that uh, belonged to the sphere of uh, political and cultural influence. What is even more intriguing is that over the last 30 years, we can speak of the, of the emerging new geography of Islam in Russia, that is uh, the, the changing, changing entirely uh, landscape of uh, Islamic infrastructure and um, intensive migration of, uh, of Muslims inside of country. And we can speak of large Muslim populations in such huge cities as Moscow and St. Petersburg on the one hand, and uh, the new booming oil centers in the so-called north and uh, northern cities where uh, many Tatars and uh, North Caucasian uh, migrants go uh, seeking 
uh, new uh, work and uh, they establish their new communities. So what we see here is that indeed Russia comes out as a uh, country with significant Muslim population, with a huge and um, colorful uh, Muslim cultures and very dynamic geography of Islam that indeed uh, merits uh, close tension and research. That's fascinating. I mean, particularly you've already hinted at one of the historical periods we've been looking at, which is the last 30 years, the post-Soviet period, when, of course, there's been a, a greater degree of religious freedoms. And as you've hinted, the sort of the, the, the ability to, to found new religious institutions in various places and, and also population movements that have made Moscow, in a sense, one of the most important Muslim cities of, of Europe, in a sense, by, by population numbers and indeed the sheer diversity of Muslims that, that, that live there. But you've also hinted at this longer story that takes us back, uh, where we'll, we'll, we'll move to in a moment, in a sense, to the beginnings of, uh, of this relationship in the, in the wake of the, the, the conquests of, of, of Genghis Khan and the Mongols, who, of course, were not Muslims, but subsequently their descendants did, uh, did convert to Islam. And you're speaking to us now, of course, from, from Kazan, which is, as you've already sort of hinted in the background, as, as you know, one of the, if not the great cultural center of the, the Muslims of Russia, particularly for the, the Tatar Muslims, one of, the, one of those groups. And no doubt we'll be returning to Kazan in a moment when we start talking about the, the Russian conquests of Kazan, when I suppose the tables turn between, between the Mongols and the, the kingdom of Muscovy. So when we turn back then the historical clock and move to the, the beginnings of the emergence of a, of, a, of a Muslim community in what we call Russia, perhaps you can tell us how did so many different Muslim communities become part of, of, of what now today is the, the Russian Federation or, or plainly Russia? Yeah, well, of course, we, can, uh, we have to be reminded that there were, uh, the presence of Islam goes back to the eras that... Uh, that are much uh, older and ancient than uh, um, the conquests of, of, um, uh, of those territories by Russians. But um, what is common for many of the populations uh, of what then became uh, the, the Russian Empire is uh, the legacy of the Gold War, as we um, uh, referred to the, uh, to the Chinggisids and um, uh, the role of Islam in their states. Basically, uh, quite often when we talk about the um, fate of Islamic cultures, the fate of, uh, of the Moscovite state, the Russian Empire, we evoke the date of 1552 as the sort of watershed um, before and after. Uh, this date is often uh, referred to as uh, the point uh, from which uh, well, the historians of colonial imperial history and nat national history, they speak of the decline of the, of the Muslim culture of this territory because of the conquest and because of the um, um, yeah, problems and um, yeah, that experienced uh, the Muslim population because of the uh, yeah waves of, of forced Christianization and the. Um, uh, um, the fact that many, many um, uh, individuals and groups, they had to leave their homes and resettle uh, to less prestigious places. Um, that is not often um, a uh, quite a uh, uh, correct uh, way of um, uh, right, yeah, 
narrating this history, but uh, yeah, the uh, traditional way of talking about it. So this starting point that you, you've mentioned then, or the, the one that historians often give as a nice, neat sort of, you know, chronological tag, as, 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 as historians do, uh, which is to say 1552, that, that's the year when Ivan the Terrible, as he's usually called in the West, Ivan Grozny, who rules from 1450, 40, 1547 rather to 1575. In 1552, that's the year in which he, he conquers Kazan after a, a series of as it were, ongoing battles and skirmishes for the, the best part of a century. And, and, as you, and, and then a short period later then, in 1556, there's the conquest of Astrakhan as well. And these were regions that had been previously conquered by the legacy, the descendants of, of Genghis Khan, the, the Golden Horde, who had converted to Islam, and these had become Muslim regions. But as, as you were hinting then, in that earlier period then of the 16th century, the reign of Ivan and his successors, the, the reign of Muscovy, um, Muslim institutions, Muslim religious freedoms, and indeed the, the right to exist as Muslims, that was extremely under threat, wasn't it? But of course, that's a situation that changes over the following centuries. So perhaps you can sort of take us through those developments from the reign of Ivan in the 16th century, perhaps through to the, the reign of Catherine the Great, when things change very markedly. Yes, exactly. Well, the problem is that we do not know much about uh, the history of Muslims themselves between the um, yeah early 17th century to the late 18th century. Uh, not much of uh, historical and yeah, scholarly attention was paid to the period and um, uh, the usual narratives um, uh, yeah, claim that there was a period of decline. While when we look more carefully at the uh, surviving manuscript material, we can still say that uh, there was more com complex uh, way of engagement between uh, those Muslims who continue to live uh, within the uh, framework of the Muslim state. But uh, still, um, what is certain here is that um, uh, uh, Catherine the Great was the first uh, uh, monarch in the Russian Empire to turn um, uh, her attention to the um, uh, state of Muslims in the Russian Empire, and she uh, allowed the building of um, stone mosques in uh, in um, in um, uh, some settlements of Muslims in the Volga Urals, and uh, also established a new uh, state institution for the uh, governing of um, Muslim populations. And was the so-called Muftiate in Orenburg, established back in 1788. And historically, that decision of uh, toleration of Islam in the Russian Empire played a huge role because uh, since then, uh, the government um, uh, tried to um, yeah, have certain figures and uh, uh, official institutions with which and they could uh, engage and um, uh, regulate uh, the life of Muslims across the country. And actually, uh, the population, the Muslim population of the country grew um, rapidly uh, since then, since the late 18th century and up to the early 20th century, uh, because of the uh, conquests of new territories and, of course, uh, due to um, the, uh, well, you can think of the conquest of Crimea, 
already during the reign of Catherine uh, the Great. And uh, well, that fact uh, or that event also has to do with uh, the memory of um, settlement and migration of huge Muslim populations from the uh, Crimean Peninsula, uh, but also uh, inclusion, inclusion of new um, huge uh, groups of Muslims um, in the uh, uh, first in, south, uh, in, in northern parts of, uh, of Central Asia, and then in the course of the 19th century, um, uh, ter territories of North Caucasus and territories in Turkestan, they became um, in one way or another different forms, administrative forms in part of the Russian Empire, and, and uh, Russians had to uh, deal with this um, new um, population, new Muslim populations uh, under their control, and establish um, yeah, uh, certain um, legal uh, forms of control. And uh, uh, generally, one can speak of um, the strategy of um, of establishing certain niches, certain, uh, creating certain Muslim niches for. For the, for, the, for the culture of Islam and uh, establishing a framework with, within which uh, it was possible to be a Muslim inside of the Russian Empire. And more or less by the early 20th century, the rules of the game were clear to, um, to the political um, um, uh, actors. Well, uh, what can be certainly said is that uh, the story of forced Christianization and the battles with uh, Christian missionaries was quite familiar to the um, Muslims in the Russia. And we know even of uh, theological debates on both sides of, of why um, Islam or Christianity is the best religion. While this um, episode was not that familiar to their co-religionists in, in, the, in Northern, Northern Caucasus, were in Central Asia because, um, well, Russians did not um, implement this direct policy of uh, integration, even and even assimilation or or um, uh, Christianization of these territories. Well, right up to the um, uh, right up to the Soviet period, when um, when the Bolsheviks already decided to uh, well get rid of, of any kind of religion uh, across the country. Well, we'll move on to the to the Soviet period in, in a moment because that's fascinating in, in its own right. But that's really helpful, Alfred, that you've given us this, this this sense of these developments over the period of of, of what we call in the Russian Empire, and, and that empire comes about, doesn't it? That the the state that we now call Russia is rather like the state that we now call China in a sense. It's the it's the a nation state that's the legacy of, of a land based empire of these great sort of conquests across the huge connected geography of, of Eurasia as, as much as Europe. And we, we mentioned then that already that, you know, you're talking from Kazan and the, the Volga Urals that, you know, if one looks at a map that probably the Volga Ural region, the great flatlands of, I guess, kind of central Russia seem to be, what could be more part of Russia than that? But these were, of course, as, as we've already mentioned, the, the lands of the Golden Horde and these important Muslim communities still to this day. And, in what is the 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 um, the uh, uh, Republic of Tatarstan as part of the, the Russian Federation, but of course there are also these other regions that you've hinted at, uh, 
Siberia. I, I remember when I first started learning, uh, partly through your work about the history of Russian Islam, I hadn't realized there was such a thing as the Siberian Khanate. And indeed, the word Sibir is coming from, from that term. And this was, again, a, a Muslim ruled Khanate from 1468 to 1598. And again, that was conquered and absorbed into what we're now calling then not just the, the Kingdom of Muscovy, uh, based upon Moscow, but this now this larger empire. And then with Catherine the Great then reaching down to the Black Sea and the conquest of Crimea. And, and, it, and, and, and as you mentioned, Catherine's rule is so important, isn't it? The 1773 Edict of the Toleration of All Faiths, which is important for different Christian communities within the empire, as well, of course, for the, the Jews of the Russian Empire and for our purposes, for the many different Muslim populations. And the foundation then of the the Orenburg Spiritual Assembly of 1778, and this beginning then of this new institutionalization of, 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 of Islam in Russia then, with new religious authorities that are closely linked with the state, as well as mosque building, and Catherine's extraordinary role of allowing it in some senses overseeing the, the printing of the Quran in, in St. Petersburg, which was one of the very earliest episodes of the printing of the Quran anywhere in the world. And, and, and certainly before it had happened anywhere in what we would think of as the, the Muslim world proper, let's say, or at least in any Muslim world state. And then you've taken us through the 19th century then with the, the conquest of what we would now, what became after the collapse of the Soviet Union and the independent states of Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan, Kyrgyzstan, and, the, and indeed Kazakhstan. And particularly then the, the conquest then of the the Khanates of Bukhara, of Khiva, and of, and of Kokhan then in the 1860s and 70s. And I missed off the Caucasus, haven't I? The conquest of what we now think of as, as Georgia, Armenia, Azerbaijan, Dagestan, etc. in the 1820s. So in short then, we've got this kind of huge geography and these very different Muslim groups. Perhaps you can give us a sense then of the, the, the ethnic and the linguistic diversity of, of these groups that we're actually grouping together as Muslims, but that's in a sense a rather simplistic catch-all label. There's these different languages and these different ethnic, regional traditions and identities as well. Perhaps you can tell us a little bit about those. Well, um, we can, we have to keep in mind that linguistically, linguistic diversity uh, ranges not only geographically, but also historically. Well, in uh, earlier times, say, uh, before the early 19th century, um, well, uh, the Persian language was quite important in, uh, in the inner uh, lands of, um, of Russia. Uh, we can find many treatises, and, uh, yeah, manuscripts, and also inscriptions in that language uh, from that epoch. Uh, and later on, the Arabic and, and local versions of, uh, of Turkic, they also became in widespread and even dominant. A different situation uh, was in Dagestan, where the dominance of, of classical Arabic uh, is, is, is a feature of the, of the original um, book culture, uh, right up to the early 20th century, when uh, um, it became uh, more uh, fashionable to write things in, uh, in the national languages, such as Awar and Kumek and so on. Well, a completely different story is the bilingual, bilingual situation in Central Asian context, where you have the Turkey, the Turkic and Persian texts interwoven, and uh, 
know, uh, it's quite often um, customary to find this uh, uh, text when, when uh, both languages intersect. And of course, the presence of Arabic is, uh, you know, was there all the time. So when we look at the ethnic and linguistic map of, 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 of Russia historically, then we find out that, uh, yeah, even the Russian language was also part of the uh, texts written by Muslims on the territory from quite early on. You know, you can see uh, already in the mid-18th century, certain words written, um, certain Russian words written in the Arabic script in, uh, in letters, a letter exchange of, uh, of Muslims in, in different areas of, of, of the country. Or even if we think of uh, the chronological systems used by the Muslims uh, of Russia, uh, the Miladi uh, system that is the uh, Christian uh, calendar was used by the Muslims um, already uh, in the mid 18th century. So we can think of, uh, of the ways how early um, this uh, dialogue and um, fusion of cultures plays. And what is fascinating about the Russian case is indeed this multicultural and multilinguistic uh, atmosphere and context in which um, this culture shaped and uh, developed over all centuries. So it is, uh, it is often not adequate to look at the history of Islam in Russia from the solely national point of view, uh, and because that would uh, severely reduce uh, those experiences of interaction and uh, yeah, code switching from one language to another. That's so interesting, isn't it? Because you've given the, the sense of, I'm struggling for the correct metaphor. It's more than a linguistic mosaic, isn't it? It's a sort of linguistic layering, I suppose, or a set of strata, because as you already mentioned, there are the, let's say, the, what we might call the national languages or the regional or ethnic languages, even in the Caucasus alone. There are dozens of these spoken languages, some of which get written down at a certain point. I mean, you know, kind of with the, the, the rise of the spread of literacy, often through interactions with Russian imperial institutions. And every different region and population, then whether the Bashkirs or the various other Tatar groups have their own spoken languages, some of which then become written language as well. But as you've already hinted, the, let's say the classical languages of learning of, of, of Islam more broadly, Arabic and Persian, were spread extremely widely, at least among the smaller learned groups among the, each community. And then, of course, there were the, the Turkic languages, sometimes called Turki or Chagatai, which were also from the 15th and 16th century became written and learned languages as well. And what you've done so much to explore and really bring to light in, in your work, Alfred, is, is, a, is a real sense of of the, the intellectual wealth and the intellectual breadth and, and, and diversity of, 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 of different uh, Muslim groups around Imperial Russia and indeed post-Imperial Russia. Because in Kazan from, again, where you're speaking from now, I say that because I'm so envious, I've long wanted to visit Kazan. We were, we were in St. Petersburg together, weren't we? And you very kindly took me to the, the beautiful mosque there, but uh, Kazan will have to wait for another day. But Kazan was an extremely important Muslim intellectual center. I'm tempted to say in some ways, perhaps the, 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 the least known of the major Muslim intellectual centers of the world, because in, I think it's 1801 or 1802, a Muslim printing press is established there. And this is before printing spreads almost anywhere else among Muslims. 
And this starts then this extraordinarily rich printed life in, in Tatar and then subsequently in other languages. Perhaps you can give us a sense then of, of some of that uh, booming Muslim intellectual life in the 19th century and, and early 20th century, that say that last phase of, of imperial Russia. Well, indeed, it's a huge topic, and actually, I'm speaking now from a, from a building which is uh, in front of the house where um, many of the um, Muslim print, print, uh, printed books were produced. That is the house of Karimovs across the the street. Uh, so that's symbolic. Um, and well, the 19th century was rich for international context. Uh, international contacts that uh, the Muslims of Russia developed um, well in, in many of the uh, localities where they lived. Um, be that uh, urban context, that is the such places as like Kazan or Orenburg or um, Troitsk, um, or be that more smaller villages somewhere uh, places like uh, Machkara or uh, Yimbaeva near Tumen in, in Western Siberia. So there you would, you would uh, suddenly see the rise of, uh, yeah, high Muslim culture in the 19th century with beautiful mosques and madrasa buildings, the entire complex of, uh, of uh, Islamic institution uh, with, uh, um, support, with the support of wealthy merchants and uh, the Sufi Hanakas, that is Sufi lodges, that would attract attract uh, numerous uh, students from uh, other places that would become really inter-regional centers for learning, be that uh, defined as uh, legal training or Sufi um, path that is uh, yeah, the training of um, inner world and um, uh, certain spiritual qualities of believers. So in, in, that, in that sense, the 19th century was reach for um, yeah, linguistic experiences and contacts and travel even before the uh, invent of um, yeah, more weak um, uh, uh, ways of uh, travel and, 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 and um, uh, um, contacting uh, co-believers, co co-religionists in, in, in other places um, in, of Islamic world. What we know uh, about the 19th century is um, um, very close relations with uh, the intellectual world in uh, Central Asia and Bukhara being uh, the sort of uh, uh, place where uh, Muslims of Russia would go. In the North Caucasus, we have a different uh, situation because there, for, uh, for many, um, for, for quite a long period of time, for centuries, I'd say, Muslims of Dagestan would prefer to go to Syria and intellectual centers of the Near East. So, uh, and uh, closer, closer to the 20th century, we find that uh, we witness a, a bit of a changing situation when uh, the uh, um, fashion, the fashions of um, of intellectual um, inquiry changed towards um, uh, more travel um, in the uh, uh, art lands of Islam in 
Mecca in Medina, and many Muslims would travel via Istanbul to uh, Syria, and then get get would get to uh, Medina and there uh, learn more about the legacy of the Prophet and memoir the Quran. So over time, not only the um, institutional setting and not only the fashions of um, uh, the intellectual empire change, but also uh, things that that Muslims find. Um, um interesting interesting and uh, more topical for themselves and what we see uh, is is open. during the 20th century for example is the rise of interest in the in the quran as a symbol as a text um and as a metaphor as well as um uh, the hadith studies and this process of globalization uh, can be seen from that perspective as well when the Arabic becomes really the uh, language of uh, global Islam and this interest in, in the Quran and the Hadith seems to me uh, also becomes a feature that, that unites uh, Muslims from other places. So you've given us a sense there of this on one hand, the, the great depth and variety of, of Muslim intellectual and, and indeed spiritual and theological life across the empire as a whole, and, and indeed the, the changes that are going on as well. I mean, this is, a, this is intellectual history, I suppose, in a sense as well. I mean, you've mentioned the importance of Bukhara, Bukhari Sharif, as it was often called, holy or noble Bukhara, because this, for the Muslims in many parts of Russia, as you've mentioned, the, the Turco-Mongolian Muslim groups, so to speak, this is the intellectual and spiritual center, isn't it? I mean, we often forget that Muslim history worldwide has been multipolar, you know. I mean, Mecca, of course, has always been the often symbolic center, but actually the, the real practical religious, intellectual, spiritual centers have actually been rather more manifold. Hazrat Dilhi, Holy Delhi in India, Bukhara Sharif. And Bukhara is important because, of course, it's the main center of the Naqshbandi Sufi order, which spreads then to the Ottoman Empire, spreads to the Mughal Empire, and survives in many regions today. But that Naqshbandi Sufi tradition, as you've already hinted, is, is enormously important among many of the Muslim groups of Russia, This and the great spiritual depth of so many of the, the let's say, theological, philosophical works, as well as the works of, of practical mysticism, of actual mystical practices to bring the believer in, in closer direct contact with, with Allah. But you've also mentioned there were the, the reformist groups of the 19th century that they called themselves the Jadids, didn't they? That we're the, the new ones, that are in some ways the, the Muslim parallel to the what's often called the Jewish Enlightenment, the Haskalah movement of the, of, 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 among uh, Jewish intellectuals and thinkers of, of, of 19th century Imperial Russia. And those Jadids, Ismail Gasparinsky from the Crimea was perhaps the most famous of them, that trying to create new modern forms of education, incorporating modern science, promoting women's education, perhaps in some ways what we might think of as more liberal, legal or other theological interpretations. And figures like Gasparinsky had an, an impact beyond the Russian Empire. He traveled to Egypt and he preached and traveled around southeastern Europe as well. And uh, his newspaper was was, was read outside of the empire as well. 
And then in more recent times, perhaps we'll come to, as you mentioned, that sort of interface with what we often think of as, as global Islam or more scriptural return to the, the language and the scripture of the Quran and the, and the Hadith. But in the middle then, there was this period of the Soviet rule, the seven decades of Soviet rule. And, and I sometimes like to throw out a few statistics. I think they can be sort of a helpful sort of easy rubric. According to scholarship, it seems the, at the beginnings of, of, of the, let's say, the October Revolution in 1917, there were tens of thousands of mosques across Russia, as well as, as you mentioned, the madrasas, religious schools, seminaries, and Hanukkah, Sufi shrines, and Sufi pilgrimage places, tens of thousands of mosques. By 1944, the end of Stalin's purges, there's something like 400. So there's a, there's a great deal of forcible repression of Islam and indeed of other religious life under the Soviet decades. But the, those policies indeed change as well, of course, over the post-Stalin period. So perhaps you can talk us through then what happened to the Muslims of what had been to, to 1917 Imperial Russia during those seven decades of communist rule under the Soviet Union. Well, indeed, quite often when we think of the Soviet period um, in relation uh, of, of, of Islamic cultures, we often speak of destruction, destruction, losses, and the dramatic sort of uh, um, uh, experience of uh, individuals during that time, which are actually not reducible to only Muslims. Um, and it, is, it would be difficult to deny um, that indeed, um, you know, all this uh, losses took place, um, yeah, murdering of uh, hundreds and probably thousands of, uh, yeah, of uh, Muslim intellectuals, mullahs, rural, rural, rural and urban level, destruction of private and uh, private libraries um, and, and mosques and all these things. But at the, at the same time, um, by mentioning that, we should not forget about the new forms or the new old forms of religiosity that um, became widespread uh, throughout the Soviet era, and also the continuation of the intellectual um, uh, tradition of Muslims during that time. Because, as um, uh, yeah, the research of colleagues and my own research into the private archives of, of Soviet Muslims demonstrate that. Actually, we cannot speak of the rupture of uh, in, in writing of uh, legal works or the study of the Quran, or and yeah, in any in any sense of um, um, of the uh, yeah uh, textual tradition that that existed before. Uh, what is interesting is is to see how uh, the Sufi history uh, develops over the 20th century because. Uh, as you mentioned, mm, mosques uh, most of the time became not available uh, for believers, but then uh, in more um, uh, quantities, they started to go to the um, shrines and sacred places, be that uh, the graves of uh, certain holy individuals or holy springs or certain trees and other outstanding uh, places that became or cemeteries that now became uh, places of worship and getting together, or also the majlises, the um, uh, 
uh, regular um, meetings of of the Muslim community uh, during which uh, yeah youth also uh, knowledge of Islam. So as I, as I say, it tells us something about the evolution or yeah new, new dynamics in the history of Islam and also Sufism that I would say uh, experienced the period of decline. Uh, in the course of, of the 20th century, regardless the efforts of Bolshevism. So, uh, so that th those processes go in parallel. Of course, uh, there, there was this uh, um, uh, state-organized attack on uh, Hujum, as they, as, they, as they say in, in Central Asia, uh, this attack on Islam uh, concentrated by the government. But at the same time, certain developments we can uh, trace um, um, that have uh, very little to do with the, the uh, governmental policies. That I would I wouldn't say I wouldn't directly link the decline of Sufism in the 20th century with the uh, with the in uh, with the of That's one thing. Another thing is well, you mentioned already um, uh, your trip to St. Petersburg. Um, Usually, when we think of uh, Saint Petersburg or Leningrad, as that city was called, sometimes the city of Lenin, you wouldn't think of that place as as a center of Islam or a place of a space for Islamic intellectual thought and any kind of uh, Muslim learning. But um, well, to my surprise, when I moved there back in 2014, um, I discovered quite many uh, private archives that, that demonstrate very vibrant uh, Muslim um, um, intellectual war that took place there uh, between 1950s and 1980s. So, uh, yeah, uh, when Muslims would uh, still compile um, poetry, uh, translate the Quran into Tatar uh, in the many different forms, and also take pictures. The, the, the topic of Muslim visuality is quite an interesting one. Now I have a, um, a PhD student who is writing a dissertation on this uh, very intriguing uh, theme. Um, and uh, well, um, the, question, the central question here is how did uh, Muslim individuals uh, imagine themselves, raise their uh, religiosity in terms of textuality and visuality among, uh, amidst this quite secularized uh, space that they would find in, in, uh, in Lengvat and other places. And uh, yeah, there are many discoveries that uh, wait us um, when we look uh, more closely at, uh, at the private archives and the individual experience of Muslims. Because what we think of the Soviet period from the uh, viewpoint of the official archives and the government is one thing, but when, when, when we look at the diaries of those persons who live, lived through the Soviet experience, lived through the Soviet century, those who went to the Gulag, who actually um, stayed there in the um, uh, Soviet concentration camps and labor camps, and who then uh, back home um, managed to uh, write their memoirs, then we have a bit of a different uh, story. Say, um, as in one example I, I know of, and I have translated that memoirs into English, the memoirs of Al-Qadri, 
who um, received his education in, in Medina and then went uh, went back home and was imprisoned um, you know, several times in the Soviet Union and then wrote his memoirs in the 1950s. So uh, one gets an impression that he imagined his life as a um, as a performance of the Quranic text because every time when something happens to him, he would tend to explain that uh, by simply citing one or another verse of the Quran. That is quite fascinating because that, that would give us another angle, another um, feeling of, of, of the Soviet era from the, from the Muslim viewpoint. That is quite interesting and, and completely unexplored, I would say. That, that's truly fascinating, Alfred, actually, because as you're hinting, it's one thing of how do we understand the history or, or broadly, let's say, the, the Muslim experience in the Soviet decades and let's say the two generations or so, those 70, 70 or 75 years. And, uh, and yes, it's one thing if we look from the, the state angle of the state attempt to have these four spiritual directorates and so on, and, and, and as you mentioned, the state archives. And of course, these are the archives and institutions of an atheist state that, of course, doesn't see the world or doesn't see the experience of the Soviet Union in, in religious or indeed spiritual terms. But of course, it's an entirely different thing if we try to understand that experience through the, the writings and, and indeed the, the eyes and in, in a sense, almost the hearts or the experience then of, of Muslims themselves. It's, it's really fascinating that text you mentioned of this Qadari Sufi then, who, who presumably then is having that sense of a a Muslim, a Quranic view of, of the world, of the life in, in the dunya, which is full of travails, full of religious tests, experiences of exile and persecution that the Prophet Muhammad himself, of course, as the, as the primordial, as it were, sort of a Muslim kind of experienced as well. So we get a sort of a very different sense of the meaning, in a sense, cosmically and spiritually of, of, of the experience of the Soviet Union and not simply that of the, how uh, an, an atheist state and its apparatchiks viewed it. It makes me think of some of recent findings of, um, of, of a hagiography in, in, in Kazakh, of uh, a hagiography of another of the Sufi sheikhs who you mentioned were imprisoned in, in, in the gulags. And one of these hagiographies, a sacred biography was written, which, which explained the miracles that nonetheless this sheikh continued to be able to perform, even escaping from his cell, you know, kind of within the within the gulag itself. And indeed, recent work on, on even uh, the collective farms, the kolkhozes, which were, of course, where rural populations were gathered together. They're taken away from their traditional social or religious institutions. And yet, too, religious, Muslim religious life managed to survive under the, under the radar of the state, didn't it? And, but nonetheless, as you said, it's transformed as well, whether through these external influences or whether through these sort of internal changes among Muslims themselves. Well, let's turn now to one of Russia's least known communities, the, the Muslims of Siberia. You've done a great deal of, of, of truly pioneering research among the, the libraries and the villages uh, of, of, of Muslim Siberia. So perhaps you can tell us something about your travels and your findings among these often extraordinarily remote communities. And yes, that's right. Well, it's already since 2005 that they've been traveling 
uh, in that region, which is a place of um, Siberian Islam between the rivers of Tabul and Irtysh in Western Siberia, that is Northeast uh, or Central Asia, if we go from that direction. And um, well, I can say that I was quite lucky to unearth a whole series of new uh, and explored hagiographies and religious texts that or genealogies that pertain or have to do with uh, the history of Muslim communities in this part of the world. It might indeed uh, sound a bit obscure when we talk about Muslims in Siberia because who would in the end, at the end of the day care about you know, the small small communities out there. But um, from my experience, uh, I see that over centuries, um, as you said, uh, uh, Muslims in those remote villages and, and, and towns of Siberia, they were uh, closely connected to the world, uh, uh, to the outside world. And the very history of the cult of saints and the history of Islamization of the region is, uh, is an example of that interregional, international um, uh, connectivity. So just to give you an example, um, uh, together with our um, colleagues, uh, Ashabek Muminov and Bill Louise, we um, published a volume on uh, um, the history of uh, hagiographies and the spread of Islam in, uh, in Central Asia. And, uh, and we managed to discover one um, particular version of, the, um, of this uh, narrative of Islamization um, that united the history of Islamic tradition in Siberia with those traditions in the Mid-Sidaria Mid Valley uh, in the southern parts of um, of um, the Central Asia. So I'm uh, talking about a, a manuscript that was brought by um, the migrant groups of Muslims uh, who uh, traveled to Western Siberia from Turkestan in the uh, late 15th century in order to uh, serve at the court of the last Siberian Han, uh, Kuchum Han, and those individuals, they brought with themselves uh, those narratives of Islamization of Central Asia, uh, and more chiefly uh, related or um, related to um, the name of uh, Ishak Bab, the main is Islamizing hero of that, of that in, uh, region in Central Asia. And, and um, well, this particular group of migrants then developed this narrative further and used it in, uh, in order to enroot the Muslim tradition in Siberia and create the local version, the local narrative of Islamization of Siberia, uh, the first version of which uh, came into existence, I suppose, somewhere in the mid uh, 17th century, uh, narrating, the, uh, narrating the story of um, the holy war of uh, warriors that came from Bukhara, in order to bring the true faith to the infidels of Siberia. And the, many, many of those warriors, the martyrs in this land, and their places of burial, their, uh, their graves, they became 
sacred places in the eyes of local Muslims. And since then, uh, the cult of the local, the regional um, tradition of venerations of those holy places that became, became a, strong, uh, a strong tradition. What is more, even more peculiar, and actually that tradition lives up to, that, uh, up to this day, uh, what is even more peculiar is that recently, um, together with our colleagues, we, we were able to identify a, a number of uh, Persian language Sufi works that uh, go back to the uh, late 17th and early 18th century. And those are the earliest known um, uh, Sufi works from Western Siberia um, that deal with the topic, such topics as the vocal forms of zikr or the veneration of shrines and some other aspects of Sufi practice. And those works were authored and sometimes written by the uh, hands of, so those are the orthographs, as we say, uh, by the hand of Dawla Shah al-Ispijaki. And this person, this individual, um, is mentioned in local hagiographies as the very first person who um, opened uh, or discovered the graves of um, yeah, of uh, martyrs, of uh, Muslim martyrs in Siberia. So the so-called phenomenon of Kashful Kubu, so the discovery of uh, of sacred graves, is also known in, in in Siberia from the early sources, and this ascribed to um, to the um, uh, activity of this person, Davlachakal al Ispijaki, from his nisbar, from his attributive name. We know that he was um, originally from uh, Ispijab, Isairam in South Central Asia. He studied in Bukhara and then was very active in his missionary work um, and, and traveled also to East Turkestan, to Yakant, but passed away in India, in Delhi. So he was really a global Muslim uh, who left us quite some writing. And, and recently I discovered yet another uh, work um, of, of his. Uh, written in Yarkand in Eastern Turkestan back in 1706 or something like that, addressed the word that the word called uh, Ababa Jinan or the uh, uh, the doors of, uh, of 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 paradise, and that work was explicitly uh, uh, addressing the uh, the the Muslims of Bulgar. That is the Muslims of the world. You in the introduction, the author says that I I, I sent I I dedicate this book to my brothers in in in, in on Sufi in Sufi path uh, from Bulgar, and that's uh, wonderful and almost unbelievable that uh, um, yeah several works uh, by this author and the crucial figure in the uh, process of Islamization in Siberia have survived up to this date and, uh, and are available and you can still study them. So uh, what I'm say saying this is that when we um, look more closely at such remote places and obscure places, uh, as it can, uh, can be seen as uh, the uh, Muslim tradition in Siberia, we can still um, um, find out so many um, uh, yeah, stories and sources and aspects of um, Islamic culture that indeed um, um, uh, reveal um, these interactions 
of various um, uh, intellectual uh, traditions across the Islamic world. And for me now, uh, Siberia yeah, became a wonderful case study um, yeah, from which I um, departed to um, understand more the dynamics of um, uh, Islamic culture elsewhere. Uh, yeah. yeah, the Russian Empire more broadly and also the Soviet Union present up to the present day. And so, yes, I mean, it, that, 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 that's really sort of enlightening, isn't it? Because I think in the West, we then tend to think in, of, of Siberia as the most remote place imaginable. And I think many 19th century, perhaps 20th century Russians, very famous Russian novelists, of course, I think were of the same opinion. But as you've sort of implicitly hinted, remote from what? And it depends from where we're looking from. I mean, you started out by explaining Siberia, not as being the east of Russia or the eastern edge of Eurasia, but as being just north of Central Asia and particularly north of, of Bukhari Sharif, the, the great Naqshbandi Sufi center. And in the last question I want to ask you, I want to sort of return too to that question of, of, of how things look different depending from, from where, from what geographical angle we look at them. Because discussions of Islam and the West are almost always framed in terms of Western Europe and the United States, as I mentioned at the beginning. So what then does the longer history of Muslim interactions with Eastern or Russian Europe tell us? Well, several things. One thing is, of course, that we still need of decentering Europe, and we probably have to always remind ourselves that we are not alone in this world. Second thing is uh, curiosity, because uh, I believe that all these Muslim cultures that we find in Russia and that develop over time, they are uh, they have merit in themselves, and they they they're, they're needed to be studied in detail and we are still lacking a good research and you know thick anthropological description of all these practices experiences and everyday uh, experiences of these um, individuals of, of past um, and the last thing probably that i also want to highlight here is that um yeah going beyond the eyes of the state and maybe adopting other perspectives that, that not necessarily go hand in hand with the um, you know, state state's view on, on, on the history and the present situation with Islam, yeah, uh, worldwide, and adopting the viewpoints of uh, individuals themselves and trying to hear their voices. Well, I'm very happy to hear that from Kazan, you're invoking the, the, the value of curiosity, Alfred, because I think if, if nothing else, Akbar's chamber is really devoted to the virtues and the value of, of curiosity and exploring the, the other peoples, the Muslim peoples who share our world with us. Dr. Alfred Bastana, thank you so much for talking to us in Akbar's chamber. Thanks for having me.
Dum 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 d